Well, good morning, everybody. On the way in the door, you should have received a program bulletin. If you can pull it out, those of you joining us online, your hosts can direct you. I think it's on the notes page at the bottom. Want to draw your attention to a kind of a new piece of communication in the financial area of our church. You see it there on the bottom side in your bulletin and just want to bring some clarity to kind of what's our heart behind this is that we want to just provide real-time updated communication and one of our desires as a leadership team, staff and elders, is just to keep you abreast all through the year. So once a month, you're going to receive an update like this in your bulletin. This is the first one. And it's just to provide, hey, how are we doing financially? Because there's a connection between stewardship and discipleship, right? When Jesus talks about how we handle what we've been entrusted with, it's directly linked to our discipleship process. And we think it's important as a body, depending, things are going great or things are going okay or things are going not so great, that we're just going to be clear in the communication all through the year. So it's not just that you're hearing about it maybe when when there's a big need or when uh, things towards the end of the year, whatever, this is our attempt once a month. So as you can see, as of today, 97% to budget. So that should deserve a round of applause, right? That's a good thing, especially when you're at the end of the summer. So thank you for everyone and your faithful giving and just all the ways that you steward your resources to help us move Jesus' mission forward. And that's, so when we say 97%, it's our general fund operating. So our operating fund's called the general fund. And it just helps us keep the lights on and keep the ministries going, keep the staff paid. It's your general operating budget. And that's 97% kind of what we budgeted for the year and what's come in for this year. We've got around a $30,000 gap as we stand here in early August. So thanks again for all that you're doing to help us move forward, continue to pray about stewardship. And as we get closer to the end of the year, hopefully we'll be able to close up the gap and we can announce 100% plus, And that just allows us to give even more money away for ministry purposes. You remember a couple months ago, we had a holy crazy thing happen financially around here. where We got to burn our mortgage. So in June, you know, burning our $4.1 million mortgage, we torched that. And that was a great moment in the life of our body. And so we're just going to continue to keep you updated. If you have questions about financial matters related to Eagle Church, Dave Weir, could you stand? Matt Olsis, are you in the room? Can you stand up if you're here? Dave Weir and Matt Olsis, these are two elders. Let's give a round of applause for our treasurer and assistant treasurer. These two guys, super smart guys, can get in the weeds on all your questions and details, so see them if you'd like to talk in more info. We good? All right, open up your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're in this series on the life of David. And we've come to this place in David's story that reminded me of something I read years ago. Um, there was a gentleman named Roger Cadenhead who near the, ear of, near the end of Pope John Paul's life, he decided to purchase a domain, a web domain, www.benedictthe16th.com, because he was anticipating when Pope John Paul was going to end his reign as Pope, he was anticipating the new Pope was going to be Benedict Sixteenth. And sure enough, as things unfolded, guess what happened? The white smoke came out of the Vatican, and they announced... The new pope was Benedict XVI, and Roger Cadenhead's phone just started blowing up because he owned BenedictTheSixteenth.com. And so the offers continued to come in. It got up to $16,000 was the offer. He was like, we'll pay you sixteen grand for this web address. And he was waiting for one call then. The call was from the Vatican, and the Vatican contacted Roger Cadenhead. said, Mr. Cadenhead... What would it take 
for you to relinquish the rights to that domain. Name your price. He said, I'm so glad you called. I've been waiting for your call. I want three things. Number one, I want one of those hats. (laughs) True story. He wants one of those hats, you know. Number two, I want a free stay at the Vatican Hotel. And number three, I want complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week of March, 1987. (laughs) True story. Complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week of March, 1987. That's the place we've come to in David's storyline today. We've come to David's third week of March, 1987. We've come to that place where we all at some point in our lives come to where you look in the mirror and go, how did I get here? Or we look back on a sequence of decisions and choices we made and go, how could I have been so stupid? We, or we look back and we just go, I knew better than to do that. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. And, and we live with this cycle of guilt and regret and, and we just kind of replay it and we cycle around. It stabs deep in the heart. Third week of March, 1987. Because there's something we all share a common bond with as humans here. We're all quite skilled at failure. All we have to do is breath of life in our lungs as a person. And we're all networked together around this reality that it's not a question of whether we're going to have a third week of March 1987. The question is, when we have those times in our lives, what would God want us to do? How would God want us to respond? The Bible word for the third week of March 1987 is called sin. It's where there's a mark set up for God. God said, this is how I'm expecting you to live. These are the values I want you to hold to. And the reality is, as a person, we miss that mark often. We fall short. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint our family. We disappoint friends. We disappoint God. We do that. It's called sin. And common ground together today is we're all very good at it, me included. And so today, we're going to look at a story in David's life. You're going to look at it and go, but David, you were trending so well. Boy, isn't that true in life? Man, right? When things are moving along so well, then right there. I want to look at how we go from this pathway. I've entitled this morning, The Pathway from Failure to Freedom. Because common ground for all of us is we're going to fail. We're going to fall short. It may not look specifically like David's. It may, but it may not. But the reality is we're all going to miss the mark. And when we do, how do we go from being a prisoner to that sin and guilt and shame and regret? Because that's what happens. We get locked up and imprisoned and we can't move on from it to finding freedom and hope and maturity and forgiveness. Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And so in your Bibles, the backdrop to 2 Samuel 11 is the following. In 2 Samuel 11, David is 50 years old which means he's been on the throne for two decades. Remember, he was running from Saul for about 13 years. He's been king now for 20 years. 
And the kingdom is expanding at a rate where it's now occupying, the kingdom of Israel is now occupying 60,000 square miles. So the borders are expanding. The enemies are being put back. The nation is flourishing. David's popularity ratings are 80 and 90 percentile in the approval category. It's David the king, David the warrior, David the leader. Everything David is putting his hands to is going so well. He's the topic of all the talk shows. Every family conversation is about what an amazing king David is for our nation. And right there, in that place, at really the height of his leadership, David falls. He sees a young lady named Bathsheba who is married to another man, and he's drawn to her. And he's the king, he does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants, and he commands his servants to say, go and get her for me. He pursues Bathsheba. He develops a relationship with Bathsheba, he commits adultery with Bathsheba while her husband Uriah is on the front line serving in David's own military. Bathsheba gets pregnant from that exchange, from those times together. She becomes pregnant and David gets word of it. And so he decides to move from now the adultery into now he's got to figure out a way to cover it up. So he says to his commander-in-chief in the army, send Uriah to the front lines. Send him out into the most dangerous territory and make sure he doesn't come home. So he has Uriah murdered on the front lines, making it look like it was a military situation when really it was a personal need to get rid of Uriah so he could bring Bathsheba into his own household and cover it all up. And this goes on for one year. And the last verse of 2 Samuel 11, it's the only recorded verse where God is mentioned in the chapter. Isn't that interesting? No mention of God in the other parts of chapter 11, which we know of David. Everything's been Godward in his life. Even when it's been hard, even when he hasn't always done the right, he would just go back to God. No praying, no calling out to God, no asking for wisdom from God, no drawing near to friends of God. It's just... David, David, David. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it here. He said this, David, or God has receded into the background and David has stepped up front and center. The more David, the less God. The less David is paying attention to God, the more he's acting as if he were God, acting like a God in relation to Bathsheba, pulling her into the orbit of his will so that she's dependent upon him, acting like a God in relation to Uriah and giving commands that determine his fate. That's where David finds himself at 50 years old on the throne in the height of his leadership. And here's the closing verse of chapter 11. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. See, he thought he'd kind of covered it up and could move on. Anybody been there, 2 Samuel 11, 27, where you wake up, look in the mirror, and you know the thing you've done displeased the Lord? It may not look just like David's storyline. It may, but it may not have. There's this, that sense right there that's starting to fall upon David when he grasps what he's done is displeased the Lord. It's called conviction. You know, conviction is a, a gift from God. The Holy Spirit, by the way, the title Holy Spirit lets you know what he's up to in our lives. Like the Spirit of God helps bring holiness, purity, helps expose those places in our life that are out of bounds. And so the Holy Spirit brings conviction in our lives to that point where you just have this pit in your stomach where you know that you know you've displeased the Lord in something. 
And if you're not there, just keep living because part of our humanity is we will fall. And when we fall in this place, David in particular, God says, I got to get to David. He's coming for us. Isn't that a wonderful thing for God? He comes for us when we fall and he never gives up on us. He keeps pursuing us. And for David, God's got to get in the way to show him the way. Anybody been there where you just, you're, in a, you're in a pattern of behavior and God steps in the way to show you the way? And this time he does it through a friend named Nathan. And I found in my life that's often how God does it for me. When I'm on the wrong path going the wrong way on some things, God sends a Nathan or two or three to me. It takes a lot of courage for Nathan's a prophet, like a spiritual leader in the nation. It takes a lot of courage for Nathan to come and sit with the king and to talk with him about this. He knows David's out of bounds with this, and he knows some things need to get called in line. And so he goes to David, and he tells David a story. Nathan says, David, I want to tell you a story. Now, remember, they have quite a friendship, so they have a long friendship, so it wasn't uncommon for them to have heart-to-hearts on matters, but he tells him a story about a traveler coming through a town, and there was a wealthy farmer who owned thousands and thousands of head of cattle and sheep. And the traveler was hungry and needed some food, needed some help. And the wealthy farmer, instead of taking one of the sheep out of his own abundance, he went to a very small and poor farmer who only had one lamb. And he took the small farmer's one lamb and gave it to the traveler. And here's David's response, 2 Samuel 12, to the story. David burned with anger, verse 5, against the man And said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And right there, third week of March, 1987. When all the cover-up and all the manipulating and all the hiding and all the running, it's all crashing in, in that desperate place on that dark day. And in that space, David writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a gift to us as followers of Jesus to show us the pathway from failure to freedom. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through four movements in Psalm 51. You can think of them as four movements in the act of confession and repentance. When we're caught up in something and we know we need to get out and go a new way, what do we do? Psalm 51 is a great guide because there's the context for how the psalm was written. Notice in your Bibles, turn now to Psalm 51 if you're not already there. And I put most of the notes or quotes on your note sheet there. Look at the subtitle of Psalm 51. It says, when the prophet Nathan came to him, David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is what he writes. First movement here, verse 1 to 3. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I underlined in my Bible the eight instances in those three verses where me and my is used. Do you see how it just jumps out at you? Me and eight times in three verses, David says, it's me. It's me that sinned. It's my failure. This is the first movement, by the way, in confession. 
The first movement is the owning it phase. You own it, and you let God change the vocabulary from he, this, she, that, they, this, to me and my. You go from he, she, they, to me and my. This is the own it. This is the movement that deals with self-awareness. You know, you can't change something that you're not aware of. Do you see, when, when, you're, when you're beginning to become more and more self-aware, do you realize that's such a movement of the Spirit of God in our lives? Because we're so good and sin, it just covers us up to help us be so non-self-aware. Like sin just works overtime to keep us blinded to our current realities. So when there is a movement of awareness and openness going on, that's a, that's a work of the Spirit. Because Genesis chapter 3 says, where did we inherit it from? Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, and they take the forbidden fruit, and then they run and hide because sin always seeks hiddenness. And God's looking for some accountability. He's looking for responsibility. He's looking for some ownership. He's looking for some self-awareness of what's gone on. And so he goes to Adam, and he says, Adam, what's happened here? And Adam's response is, the woman you gave me. How about that? Didn't use her name. The woman, and then you, Lord, you started this. You gave me to her. See, it's all she, they. She took the fruit and she gave it to me. So the Lord goes to Eve, Eve, fill in the gaps here. What's going on? And what's Eve say? The serpent made me do it. You see this? It's all he, she, they. It's, it's blame shifting. It's finger pointing. It's rationalizing. It's no owner. God's looking for someone to come forward with some ownership and responsibility. We've, we, we are PhDs in non-self-awareness. We're, we're really, really good at that. And so the first movement in confession is where David's at when Nathan comes to him. Now, it's approximately one year from the time David took Bathsheba until the time of his kind of eyes being... So he lived for about a year in this non-self-aware stage, covering, hiding, manipulating, maneuvering. And sometimes that, that could be a week, a month, a year, sometimes it's a decade. For some people, it's a lifetime. They're never able to fully come to grips with who they are and how who they are is affecting those around them. And to come to grips with what's God calling them to be and to see things for what they are and to have some ownership. To move from it's his fault or her fault or their fault to me and my. What have I done to contribute? David starts with, Lord, thanks to his friend Nathan, I, me, my, have fallen. And then he builds now. So the first movement is owning it, and there's a shift of vocabulary. The second movement now, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. In that section, you might want to underline all the you's. If you do, you'll come up with eight. Eight me and my's in the first three verses, eight you's in the next three, and you representing what? The Lord and with God, right? And this is a stage I'm calling it the uncover stage. You go from owning it, you're going to uncover it, where you move to this place where you let God name the failures, 
This is the place where you get your eyes off of yourself and even off of all of those that have been hurt by your sin. We'll get to that in a minute. But this movement is, do you know before you can deal with the people issues, you have to deal with the God issue. And so, of course, our sin never just affects us. It always affects those around us. But before we can move towards repairing, restoring, and rebuilding with people, we've got to deal with the God issue. And can you imagine for David when he finally got his eyes off of all of the cover-up with Uriah and all the manipulating stuff with Bathsheba? He got his eyes off of all of that stuff through Nathan's story, and he set it squarely upon the God who gave him life the God who's provided him for him, anointed him, protected him, the God who just selected him and plucked him out. He put his eyes on that God, holy and majestic in all his ways, and he sees now, as clearly as he's seen in that whole year, that he has sinned, and foremostly his sin and offense is against God, against you, Lord. You realize, right, there's a difference from sorrow for being caught and brokenness for my sin before God. There's a difference. And by the way, you can't fake that. You know and everyone around you knows when you've got brokenness before a holy God for your sin versus sorrow you got caught. Now, God can use sorrow for getting caught to get you to brokenness, but my point is, you know, you know when you're there. And when you get there, that's the gateway to move towards the people around you, but not until then. Because it's quite disingenuine to move towards the people around you when you're just sorry that you got caught in this versus broken before God for who you are and what you've done and how it's affected, not only relationship with Him, but now the relationship with people around you. And then you move toward people from that place of brokenness. It's unmistakable when that movement has occurred. And this is for David. Like I said, it's a year. It was a year worth of him. I can't imagine all the worship gatherings he had to lead and all the choruses. I can't imagine all the prayer services, all the spiritual leadership as the king was thrust into, all the ways which we do, right? We just compartmentalize, we stuff it, and that, yet there's this conviction. I'm sure there, if David were to talk about the unsettledness of that year, the lack of peace, the lack of integrity on the inside of his life, and until Nathan could come and tell him the story, and then the eyes of his heart are opened, and he owns it, and he says, it's me. It's me, it's me who sinned, and it's against you, you, Lord. I'm uncovering my sin before you, and I'm letting you name the failures. And this is how you can kind of move towards a step towards freedom, right? You move towards freedom in this because you can't get to the place of freedom. You'll be bound in your failures until you get to the place where you deal with the God issue. And that's where you kind of stay locked into them until you get to this point of broken. And I think David in the early part of this psalm shows us that. And then there's this third movement now. Stay with me. Seven to nine, he says this, cleanse me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. There he gives you insight on his year. The bones you have crushed rejoice. I think he's just holding some things in. There's that sense of just internally decaying 
when you know some stuff is not right and you know it needs to be set right with God and others. There's that right there. Bones crushing, internal decay stuff. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So notice there in that section, the imagery has to do, you see cleanse, clean, wash, whiter. You see, the imagery has to do with dirt and a cleansing from dirt here. I think it's a great, it's a great picture where God's like helping David come to grips with this, right? Sexuality is good and necessary and, and beautiful. David, it becomes dirty when it's used for the wrong reasons, at the wrong time, in the wrong way. Like our voices, our mouth, our words, like they can be instruments of tremendous good, but they become dirty when they're used for the wrong reasons at the wrong time in the wrong way. Like money is a necessary and important item for how we operate in our world today. It can be good in how it's used, but it can become dirty when it's acquired and used in the wrong way for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. And we become imprisoned and locked into our sin. Do you see how this happens? We get caught up in this and we just decide sin's skilled at getting us just to kind of go underground, go in hiddenness, go in isolation and say, I'm going to try to deal with this myself. I know I need to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it myself. And right there, which is Genesis 3, the pattern, right? We inherit that. You don't want to go towards openness. You don't want to go towards reach out for help. You want to go internal and say, I got this. I'm going to handle it myself. And right there, and men, if I can push a little bit on this topic for a moment, men, this is why the issue with pornography, you are never going to be able to handle on your own. Sin is too powerful. It's too strong. The enemy has convinced you you can handle it on your own and you're all in isolation on it, and that's why you can't experience any freedom from it. You haven't got to this stage right here. This is the stage you got to get to where you can move toward another trusted brother in Christ in a spirit of openness and say, I need help. Do you know if you'll take that movement, I know it takes tremendous courage, right there, the power begins to be reduced and you begin to move from the failure to the freedom just by the step of openness. It doesn't have to be just pornography. It can be anything in our lives. Maybe you're caught up in a cycle of lying and deceit. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's gossip and slander. Whatever it is. You say, How, what's the pathway out? One of the clearest pathway out that David's showing here is, I've got to have a cleansing from beyond me. It's like you're, if you're covered in dirt, like my brother and I, when we would go out and play when we were younger, and we come in just covered in dirt, we couldn't cleanse ourselves from just all of our dirt. And that's a bit like how when we try to manage our sin and our own wisdom and strength. It's like me up here covered in complete dirt and trying to cleanse myself from my dirt. That's not how this works. David says, I need you, Lord. I need to go to the wash basin of your grace to come and cleanse me. I need a cleansing from beyond me to come and deal with this. And that's why, do you see how powerful it is when you stay in isolation, how it keeps you locked in that prison cell failure? We've got to be willing to become known in our places of failure and sin. To step out and to say, hey, I need some help here. I need to have a conversation here. And this is the key third movement. I like how Peterson put it. I put this quote in your notes, I believe. We can no more live a sinless life than we can plant potatoes without getting our hands dirty. 
but neither do we have to go around all day with dirty hands. There are wash basins well supplied with soap in our homes and workplaces and baptismal fonts and baptistries in our sanctuaries. The way, hear this, the only way to deal with sin is through washing and connecting with God's forgiveness like washing requires frequency. So the first movement is an own it movement. And then there's the uncover movement. And then there's the put it away movement. And this leads us to our fourth movement, verse 10 in the Psalm. 10 to 12 says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Look at those verbs there. Create, renew, restore, sustain. You see, God can rebuild from this pile of brokenness. He can. But do you see the movements in this psalm? Do you see how kind of the left-hand side of the points is our part? Or in my Bible, I wrote them on the left-hand side of the psalm. I wrote, own it, uncover it, put it away, leave it on the left-hand side of the psalm. That's our part. Do you know the right-hand side? That's God's part. This is what God does. Look what God does. He changes the vocabulary. He helps us move from the he, she, they. He helps it become me and my. God helps name the failure. He helps me be clear with dealing with what it is I've done and who I've hurt starting with God, dealing with the God issue for the people issues to come. And then the third movement you see on the right-hand side is you let God cleanse and cover. He does the cleansing and the covering. We can't do that ourselves. We need a cleansing. We need the wash basin of His grace to come. And then the fourth movement is God's the only one who can restore and mature and redeem all this mess. Do you see this? This is a great picture of the intersection in our spiritual growth. Here's the, here's spiritual growth occurs at the intersection from personal responsibility and total dependence. Right there, that intersection is spiritual growth. Personal responsibility. We got to own it. We got to become self-aware. Gift of the Spirit is helping us become self-aware. It's got to change from he, she, they to me, my. Have mercy on me, oh God. I'm the one that's fallen in sin. I'm the one that's contributed to this mess. Here's my failure. I got to own it. That's the personal responsibility stuff. And I uncover it. I put it away and I leave it. And then God comes in. God's part is what? He helps change the vocabulary. He helps cleanse and cover. He helps restore and redeem. And right there at that intersection of personal responsibility and total dependence is growth. And so when you step back from the psalm and you say, well, where's our third week of March 1987? It doesn't have to look just like David's or Roger Cadenhead's, but here's what's clear. We will all have them. The question is, when we get there, how is God wanting us to respond? And I think Psalm 51 gives us a pathway and some movements. So worship team, why don't you come on up? Here's how we're going to kind of lead through the closing part of the service now. The team's prepared a song, and it's kind of a song. Molly's going to sing it to us, and I want to just create some space here because I recognize that this topic and this text, it definitely pushes in. I know some very personal space on a morning like this. And so I want to give you an opportunity to just kind of maybe make your blue chair a little bit of an altar between you and the Lord right now. 
And my questions for you fall in line with the movements in this psalm. If you come in kind of dealing with a pattern of your own failure and your own sin and whatever measure, is this morning, is this the morning where you say, you know what, Lord, it's time for me to stop having the vocabulary be all about he or she or they, and it's time, the movement needs to be, Lord, it's time for me to own some stuff. Is that where we're at in the, say, Lord, is it, is it the own it stage? Or maybe, or maybe it's into this, is it the movement stage where you begin to uncover some things and, and you begin to shift your focus on all the other things in your life, begin to shift it and center back on the Lord. You say, God, it's you. I got to get centered back with you. I've been running and hiding and rationalizing and manipulating and whatever long enough. I'm, I got to go. I got to go back to you. Or is it the third movement? Is there something in the third movement itself where it's time for the reach out for the cleansing? Like you've got to the place where you're owning it and you're uncovering it. You know, if you uncover your sin before God, He's the one who covers it up in Jesus. That's grace. That's the cross. That's the sacrifice He made. He knew we all had no shot to manage our sin in our own wisdom and strength. Jesus goes to the cross for us. And do we reach out today? Today is it reach out for the wash basin of His grace. There's nothing you're going to uncover before Him that He can't cleanse and cover in His grace. Or maybe it's the fourth movement. Maybe you've been working through some of those three. Maybe it's the fourth one and you've come to the place and you've hit that stage of beginning to restore and redeem and mature and heal and rebuild. You know, you can't get to that fourth without moving through the first three. First three. I know our tendency is always to jump, want to jump and to fix everything, but hey, we can't skip over. And so as Molly sings this song, I just want you to spend some time, just you and the Lord. The prayer areas are open. If you need some personal space yourself, you head over to the prayer areas and just take some space there if you like. Or just use the blue chair that you're sitting in as your personal altar and say, Lord, here I am. The pathway to freedom is before us. We don't have to stay locked up in our failures. But we can't get free if we live in denial of them. So we've got to move out from that prison cell of kind of non-self-aware, manipulating, running, hiding, rationalizing, say, I'm I'm done with all that. I'm going to go from that place of isolation. I'm going to move to openness before God and before some trusted friends. Let's let the lyrics of this song help us in that space. Molly. Just take a moment, you and the Lord. What's God saying to you this morning? Just say yes to whatever it is you sense Him speaking to you, what step you're at. Just say yes and amen and embrace it. Thank you so much that there's nothing that we're uncovering before you this morning that 
your life and death are completely sufficient. On the cross, you hung there. You paid the price. You poured out your blood to deal with all this. So we just uncover now. Drag it out of hiddenness. We drag it out of wherever it's been and just uncover it before you and say, have mercy, O God. Have mercy. confess our sin to you. And then would you give us now by your spirit the gift of, of repentance, of turning and helping us go a new way. That we'd move from this place of failure and bound in our failure, move to a place of freedom and hope and redemption and restoration that you could do something with this storyline that's beyond we could have ever imagined. So pour out your spirit, we pray. We bring the whole of our lives to you. And with honesty and transparency, we say, Lord, here we are. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Have mercy. In Jesus' name.